0: I'm Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, and welcome all to our continuing podcast series, Turning the Tide, Saving the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, Trey Hill joins me today. Trey, I've known for a long time, known your father. Trey and his father farm on Maryland's eastern shore and Kent County is their home, with his wife and two children, and his wife is joining us today. We might try and force you to say something, but you're say, no need. Uh, and you you live in Rock Hall and have been there really all your life, haven't you, Trey?
1: Yes, yeah. yep. Other than education, so yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, Trey's a graduate of Purdue University with degrees in economics and agri- agronomy, and he's a recent recipient of a White House Champions of Change Award. Tell us a little bit about that. That wasn't exclusively agriculture, or was it?
1: Um, it was just for. It was for. Um... Being sustainable in the face of climate change and what uh, different folks around the country are doing to kind of help adapt agriculture to climate change and that focus was brought on me I was nominated by um, DuPont who I do a lot of work with they bring a lot of folks to the farm I think we've had people from 45 different countries visit our farm in Rock Hall um, so there's some pretty exciting stuff going on and what what I've found is, is very unique, not just about me, but the area, northern Delmarva, um, Kent, Cecil, Queen Anne's, and Talbot counties, is that you have a real neat network of farmers working with some of the local environmental groups. And I live in the small little world that I live in. I don't get out too often, so I don't really think of it as being special. But when you travel around the country or even outside our state, uh, you come to the realization that that situation is very unique, where you have... Uh, farmers you know big farmers small farmers um, organic farmers conventional farmers working with folks like the sassafras river keepers or the chester river keepers or the chesapeake bay foundation and kind of working together to solve problems which doesn't sound that special it certainly shouldn't warrant going to the white house but um, i think that it is and then when you look at that that's kind of what dupont wanted to likes me to convey not they don't want me to convey but that's what I convey and that's what they like about me and I think that that um, was kind of the basis of it and all the farmers there there were six farmers each one doing uh, very different things um, from around the country there was around the country yeah. yeah there was one guy from California that's doing a lot implementing a lot of the same stuff we are they have a slightly different scenario because they have severe droughts but how you grow crops with a lack of water is very much the same as we grow crops here in our adaptations to to the face of climate change and different weather related things and also cleaner water and that involves growing cover crops making soil healthier getting better mineralization getting better infiltration that way you get better water utilization whether you're in a drought or if you're in our environment where you're worried about the environment you get much better um, nutrient uptake and nutrient efficiencies um, so what this man in California was doing on a vegetable farm growing strawberries, a lot of the things he's adapted to and changed in his farming operation over the last five to ten years were a lot of the same stuff that I'm doing here um, based on the, the same same ecologies. Um,
0: well, c- congratulations. That's a high honor. And uh, we've known you for a long time. We've worked together for a long time. So we're very proud of what you've accomplished. And, and that's great for Maryland, great for the Chesapeake Bay so, w- well done. Now, Trey, you, you, you said, um, I'm just a little a little guy. Or so, that, that reminded me that I'm just a country lawyer, you know, when you run up against one of these big deals. You're a pretty sophisticated business person. Tell us a little bit about the size and scope of what you do, what your crops are, what you're utilizing in terms of equipment. I remember coming over there several years ago and you you've got some some big equipment in the field.
1: Yeah, farming's a lot more technical, I think, than a lot of people realize. Um, and once again, if you're kind of in our world of farming, you you come to expect it. But yes, we we're um, probably a little over ten thousand acres. We're spread out over uh, four different counties.
0: And um, these are these are ten thousand acres you farm, not all that are in your ownership.
1: Correct. So, we right. rent a lot of land. Um, so I rent from many different people. We actually do the work ourselves. It's me and a team of about ten people. Hmm. Um, we get a few part-time people in here and there. We might subcontract some of our trucking or something. But uh, me and the 10 men and women um, basically farm everything ourselves. I'm out in the field every day, so it's not that I'm sitting in, a, in an office somewhere.
0: Unless but, you're at the White House getting an award.
1: Yeah, occasionally you have a day off <laughs> here and there. Um, so, yeah, the, the machinery is very sophisticated. Um, we happen to run Case equipment, but there's Case and John Deere, and there's a few others. But we grow corn, wheat, soybeans. The corn and the beans that we grow, all go to feed chickens um, here locally. Uh, I don't think any of my stuff is, is exported. And then the wheat goes for human consumption. It typically goes to Pennsylvania. Um, there's one uh, flour mill still in Ellicott City, but there's about seven or eight different flour mills that we ship to in Pennsylvania, that then grind the wheat into flour and then they sell it to the bakeries.
0: And is, is the 10,000 plus acres you or you and your dad combined?
1: Uh, we're partners. You're partners. In Harborview. Um, I've kind of taken more of the—I'm kind of probably more in charge than him now, but that's, that's we argue about that so, day to day. But. So,
0: the, the, you know, <laughs> s- some people talk about industrial-scale farming, and they compare that to family farming. Those barriers really break down when you hear about what you and your family have done. You're a big farmer, for, especially for a Maryland operation, but you're a family—
1: Yeah, there's a lot of misconceptions, I think, and, um, yeah, we would probably fit that industrial scale size, but when you boil it down, I mean, it's my father, myself, and nine people that work with us. Employees. Um, They're basically like family as well. I mean, it's a pretty small group of people with, you know, we try to keep little turnover. They're um, well-educated, responsible men that work with me, and, um, you know, we're both involved day-to-day, and there's no other, really no one else outside of that that, that that manages the farm, so it is truly a family farm. Um, But I think that with the misconceptions comes one of my other um, philosophies is everyone thinks that, that agriculture and food production have to be one or the other. You know, it's either industrial scale or it's very small. And my theory is that why can't we have both? You know, I mean, to me, I have a CSA on a farm. Colchester CSA is it's a community-supported agriculture. It's on a farm. I supply all the housing and everything for the folks, and it's a nonprofit with a focus on ag education. And I kind of think that in, in my personal belief, I said, well, a 10-acre CSA doesn't compete with me, right? I mean, that's a tenth of 1% of what I till. So the guy that competes with me is the other guy that looks like <laughs> me. I mean, he's the guy that I should be worried about. So I don't I, – I run into – I run into it on both sides. If I go to like a large farmer meeting, you know, where it's, you know, a lot of large growers and stuff, there's sometimes animosity towards the smaller folks. And then if I go to a smaller folks meeting, there's animosity towards the bigger guys. And I'm kind of going, well, we we need both to have food production for the world. You know, it's just, it's not a, there's no A or B. There's no, you know, us or them. It's how do we work together? Um, So that's kind of why I help support the CSA just to, to kind of put rubber on the road
0: so t- tell us a little bit more about that. And first, CSA is community supported agriculture. Mm-hmm.
1: So we have a lady named Teresa that runs it, and she gets interns in throughout the summer, which a lot of times is people that want to get into farming. And what I do right now, the you know, there's a pretty good impediment to young people doing what I do, and that's because the equipment that we alluded to earlier is so expensive. Um, so it's kind of something you almost have to be born into, essentially, to get. I mean, there's some success stories, but it's they're few and far between because the capital investment so people that want to get into farming I think there's excellent opportunities now um, for organic production and and boutique production you know to sell to higher end stores Um, so the Teresa runs it they grow you pay what annually and you get a share so every week you get seasonal vegetables um, that have been grown on the farm and you get whatever they happen to have so she has this this super elaborate schedule of planting dates vegetables and products a lot of heirloom stuff you know stuff you wouldn't normally see in the grocery store which kind of gets her a little bit of you know differentiate stuff and they grow it and then they deliver it to different places and then they also um, go to I think two different farmers markets and then sell whatever's left after the shares have been sold
0: right and this is this is uh, happening more and more around the country I mean even the Chesapeake Bay Foundation on our Claggett Farm has a CSA and we work with the DC Community Food Bank so again it's a a sharing of resources in the same way you're talking about. And is, is the um, one you're working on with, is that uh, organic or different?
1: Um, Teresa is not certified organic. Not certified. Um, but she doesn't use chemicals. Right. So um, I'm not sure what her belief is in that, mm-hmm. but that's just the way she does it, and she knows way more about it than right. I do, so um, that's what what she does. And they have a board. Um that's associated with it as well that helps her to to run that cSA
0: probably into the benefits of not using chemicals but not into the bureaucracy of trying to get certification for organic which I, is, I think um, that's
1: probably pretty I think that's most of it yes uh
0: you, you grew up in a farm family. I mean, I was going to ask you what brought you to farming, but my <laughs> guess is you, you probably didn't really have much of a choice in your own mind you you You'd lived on the farm, you went to Purdue. Did you think about it? I I thought about
1: it quite often. Yes. Um and I still think about it. It's uh it's something I always loved. It's what I always enjoyed. It's um I enjoy the farming's a little different than a lot of professions in that what you end up with at the end of the day is a physical product. You're actually producing a product with the help of mother nature and everything else. I mean, you're but at the end of the day you're actually producing food, whether it's or feed or food. And I think that that riding up and down the road and seeing your fields and seeing it grow and seeing the corn come up and seeing the beans come up and then when you go to harvest and how they did. And there's, it's, it's more fun be now because I think there's, there's more technical aspects to it and there's a lot more of um, just being able to see everything. But it's, it's also a lot of thinking involved. So you can kind of intellectualize a lot of it and kind of really start to implement a lot of the technology and the different things that we're doing with the environment and stuff. So it's getting more challenging but more fun.
0: Tell us about the conservation practices you utilize. How difficult are they? How are they funded? What are the benefits?
1: Um, We've been doing conservation practices for probably 20 or 30 years. I think we first met 20 years ago. There was a cocktail party where we tried to kind of bridge the gap between... um, The Chesapeake Bay Foundation and and farmers and trying to figure out how to to kind of work together to preserve farmland because we didn't want development and you guys didn't want development so we had some common ground we all think one can agree that we want clean water which I think is pretty pretty common as well so we've been putting in waterways grass waterways and we've been doing uh, ponds and retaining areas and filter strips for quite some time the no-till was is kind of come and gone and it's coming back again and that's where we don't turn the fields um, what we do is we just leave all the residue from last year's crop, and we plant into it the following year. So that's so
0: in the fall you're not plowing. Is there a are you planting a cover crop or?
1: Well, the evolution of of the no-till. Um, we were struggling to get yields with the no-till compared to conventionally tilled. So in the spring, we would turn the soil like you would rotary till a garden. Right? It's probably the most similar. So now we basically don't do any tillage. So if you had a garden, it would just be going in and putting your tomato plants in. So then we started doing cover crops. The, the unnatural portion of what I do is that we have a field that, has, that the corn or the beans have died, but the trees are still green. So in other words, the soil is still alive. The soil is still breathing. The 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 everything in the soil is still living. So therefore, it has percolation. There has you know, any nutrients that are left over are still going through the soil. Once it freezes, it's not a big deal. I, this is my this is my very untechnical understanding. Is once it freezes, you're fine. But we've set up an atmosphere where we we harvest our crops in early September. But there's still another two weeks where there should technically be something growing. If Mother Nature was growing it, then there the leaves would still be green. There would still be uptake. So. We started with the cover crops. um, I guess I started about 20 years ago, and then we've implemented them over time to where now we're 100% um, cover cropped. Every acre I till gets a cover crop, Um, thanks in large part to your lobby (laughs) because you guys really got the money earmarked, so I get paid to put in the cover crops. That's
0: state funding.
1: Yes, Mm -hmm. and I think that's probably the biggest difference. And now I'm managing my cover crops much better than I was.
0: And under the program, you're not allowed to harvest them for profit.
1: Correct. They're just for nutrient uptake,
0: for, for taking up nutrients that are excess in the soil, and for stabilizing the soil and preventing erosion over the winter.
1: Yes. So now I think that with
0: the the whole there's a big movement
1: in agriculture for agroecology, which is coming up with a full systems approach to farming, which I believe in wholeheartedly. I've always believed in a full system. You know, the the farm even um, as far back as my father, but it's always been a system. You always wanted a plan. A, you know, a, a point and counterpoint. So part of the system is now going 365 days a year. How do we manage this system all year long, build healthy soils, and have much better efficiency of our nutrient uptake, which you'll never have perfect efficiency. In growing food, you have to have fertilizer to grow food. That's, a, that's pretty much a fact. I don't know anyone that would really refute that in, in a large-scale global food production. So within mother the natural world, it's not a factory where you control everything there's always going to be leaks in the system. So it's a matter of how do we fine tune this system and get this better systems approach to where we always have nutrients moving up, even as we're applying them, how do we get them up constantly so that they stay in the top layer of the soil so that the roots can get to them and grow. And I think that that's what's kind of been the key to getting better efficiency and hopefully less nutrients in the water. The unfortunate part, the depressing part for me and for, for folks like you guys, is that the water's not getting cleaner. So I'm doing all this work, but farming is still providing nutrients to the water, but a lot of the nutrients that are going into the water are 20 years old. And that's where it gets kind of hard to understand because the water goes down through the soil, then it gradually migrates through the aquifers to the bay, which can take 20, 30, 40 years, according to my understanding. So that's where I think it gets... It gets a little hard to. I'm sure you guys run into it in many industries and work with lots yes. of people. That it gets a little. It gets a little disheartening when you make all these changes and you, you drive down the roads of Kent County and every field is green. I mean, I'm not just talking about myself. I'm talking about just farmers being on board, doing the right thing, being socially responsible. You know, observing these things, and then you you get the report card back, and you would think that there should be a drastic change. In water quality over the last five years because of the drastic changes in farming Um, but I think that that as we work our way towards it 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 should get the water will get cleaner based on what agriculture is doing.
0: That's the lag time as these nutrients move through the ground through the soil into the groundwater and then the very slow passage of groundwater into the surface waters so it does take time and there is a lag time. Have you, um, I imagine you have heard the uh, term TMDL. Mm -hmm. We call it the Chesapeake Clean Water Blueprint. Uh, For our listeners, TMDL is Total Maximum Daily Load. It's a concept that describes how much of any given pollutant a certain system can handle without getting out of balance. And the Chesapeake Bay is now under what one... uh, commentator quipped was the mother of all TMDLs because it covers the entire 64,000 square miles, six state district of Columbia, entire watershed of the bay. Um, There's a lot of polarization and and some in the agricultural community, and I don't think it's universal, oppose This state-federal partnership, some in the ag community would say it's a top-down mandate coming from the feds, forcing change at the local level that's unnecessary. Do you have any views on this?
1: I'm probably not well-educated on it enough to really have a view. Um, So far, we have more regulations in Maryland than any other state as far as agriculture is concerned, but I don't feel like it's been an impediment. To my farming operation, Um, I go speak to farmers in the Midwest, um, where you know one of the chemical companies or seed company will say, "Hey, can you come talk to farmers about what you're doing on the Chesapeake Bay because you guys are quite famous for the regulations that you deal with." And these farmers come to me, and they look like I should be overwhelmed. And I don't feel like with the implementation that we've had over time, that it really has impeded what I'm doing. I mean, the nutrient management plans, I don't. I don't want mine public just from a competitive nature and a business nature of it, but I don't feel like they're a big deal. You know, it's not hard to do. I mean, it's standard practice. We've been doing them for 20 years, so it's not really an impediment. As far as the TMDLs go, as far as I know and a little bit of research, farmers have pretty much been hitting their marks, you know, across the board. So assuming that we have funding for things like cover crops and assuming we can keep farming the way we're farming, then I don't see where it's a big deal. I know that some of the And I don't know how the animal people, how it will impact them. They're they're the ones like my um, in-laws are dairy farmers and I'm friends with some dairy farmers and some chicken farmers. So what that impact will have on them. I utilize a lot of litter. And I like litter. It's a great nutrient provider for my. Litter corn. meaning
0: chicken litter coming out of uh, chicken houses.
1: Yes, we, we we buy chicken. I purchase chicken litter because it's expensive, and I haul it to my fields and we spread it under our nutrient management plans. And then we you know grow the crop, harvest the crop, and plant cover crops. So that's. Um,
0: Chicken litter is a great soil supplement, returns organic matter to the soil, et cetera, et cetera. The problem comes when you have too much in a concentrated area, more than the crops can take up. And that's certainly true in part of the shore, but you're bringing it from an area that really, uh, to an area that really has not, does not have an overabundance of chicken litter.
1: Yes, my phosphorus levels are, are within the state's standards of where we actually need chicken litter. don't right. need it, but it, it provides a good source of nutrients. We check the chicken litter, we take a sample of it, we see how much phosphorus is in it. Then my nutrient management plan writer says you can put on, say, three tons of chicken litter um, for your corn crop or a ton and a half for your bean crop, and this is how much supplemental nitrogen you'll need in the form of, you know, we use urea or 32% nitrogen, you know, a chemical form of nitrogen to get the rest of the crop to grow.
0: Do you ever have anybody from the state, much less the feds, come out and check to see that your nutrient management plan is being implemented as you've written it, or is it pretty much the honor system?
1: Um, we get audited. Um, I was involved in, well, I've been audited twice, and then I volunteered to do a fast cap program, which the state represents. I haven't followed through on it yet, um, which was a voluntary audit. Um, because I wanted to, I actually wanted the state to come in and audit me because I figured if I'm doing something wrong, I'd rather know it, hmm. correct it, and move on than, than have an audit come in. So they did a voluntary audit, and basically, if I ever get FASCAP certification, it will state that basically all of my fields have been certified to all soil conservation standards. My soil conservation standards are up to snuff, and my nutrient management plan is up to snuff, saying that I'm—I don't know what FASCAP stands for because it's a long acronym—but <laughs> it was that was kind of the the juxta of the of the program. So I'm still working towards that. But
0: well, you you I'm sure read the agricultural press a lot more than I do. But and I uh, imagine from having known you for a long time and what you believe in is that it frustrates you as much as it does me to see the kind of polarization that's occurred between conservation communities and agricultural communities. What can we on either side of the, of the, of the fence, so to speak, do about this?
1: I, that's where I struggle um, because I agree. Um, that's why I'm, I'm on the board of the Sassafras River Association. I work with the Chester River Association, so I kind of do what I can personally based on my own personal beliefs and I view all things as, as, as um, common ground and I go well you know I have a boat we, you know the farm's on the bay I live on grazing you know I live on a creek so I have kids so I can't really not want clean water you know it's kind of a fundamental point that you can't really argue over whether you're conservative or liberal you have to most people would agree that we want clean water to swim and fish in. Um, so going from that perspective and then working your way out as a farmer, I go, well, I need to do my part. Um, so I don't know how I go to, to meetings and it, it astounds me on both sides. Um, <laughs> you know, from, from the, the environmental group, um, I try to stay outside my comfort zone and that makes me more comfortable outside the comfort zone. So I try to get involved with the environmental communities and just see what, what's going on. And then I still have some that, you know, you can just tell there's animosity towards me. And I go, well, because I'm a farmer? You know, because I want to raise corn, soybeans, and wheat and, you know, hang out with my kids? You know, that's, you know, it's what I've chosen as a profession, but there shouldn't be this animosity. It should be more of a, you know, well, if you think I'm doing something wrong, tell me what it is and let's correct it. Now, if you don't think there should be farmers, then we have a fundamental difference of opinion. Then you can't have any common ground. But if the common ground is clean water, how do we fix it? Then I think that there should be a lot more, a lot less animosity amongst the groups. But I can't, um, I struggle to wrap my head around it as well.
0: You, you and me both. It's it's really one of the great frustrations of the work on this side of the fence, as I'm sure it is on your side, because we do have such common ground and common beliefs. And um, you know, as, as I've always said, and I know you believe, um, well-managed farmland is one of the best. Active, active land uses you can have in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. Um, so w- losing farmland would would be a great loss to the environment. Um, but we have to all do our part, just like you said, and make it as good as it can. And and what what is so discouraging is the kind of um, barbs back and forth that take people apart as opposed to bring people together i I certainly look at the current litigation which now as you probably know the farm bureau and some of the other national ag organizations are uh, appealing to the supreme court to try and overturn this state federal partnership Um, i'd love to see them work together with all of us rather than spending money on the attorneys
1: yeah i don't um like i said my biggest the point I'll make if I go to, like, the Midwest is, you know, I, I always talk about cover crops and how great they are. And I've become a firm believer in that because economically they make sense for me because my soils are getting healthier and I, I'm getting better yields in by implementing them. Um, so I'm starting to do some more research on soil health and starting to really send away samples and start to track soil health over time. And the people go, oh, well, we have no funding. And I go, well, don't you have a very powerful lobby in your state? doesn't happen to be farmers, but it's people that want cover crop. That's what Maryland did. I mean, we had a a very uh, symbiotic relationship in which you guys wanted cover crops, and I wanted cover crops, but I wanted to be paid for it. So the farmers and the environmentalists came together, joined lobby groups, if you want to call it a lobby group or whatever you want to call it, whoever could secure funding in a state that didn't have much money at the time, and now it's secured funding. It's doing good things. Farmers like it. Environmentalists like it. So I think that we need more relationships like that where we can – use each other to benefit um and i don't think that that it's it's similar to me in the csa i don't view us as competitors but as compliments Um, there's really no reason for us if we are working together if i am doing something wrong and for example like the chester riverkeeper said we want better nitrogen efficiency you guys should be using green seeker um ndvi readers on your sprayers
0: tell us what those are
1: it's a sensor, and it's been around for a long time, but basically it's a sensor that measures crop health as we spray the field. So as the sprayer goes across the field, it has GPS on it, and it has a rate controller on it that takes speed, pressure, and GPS and puts on the exact amount of gallons per acre that we tell it to put on. So what this does is it, it, it measures the greenness of the plant, as probably the, the vegetative index, and it says where the plant needs more nitrogen or needs less nitrogen, and it changes the rate accordingly. So it's a pretty neat technology. It's not, I don't think it's the end-all be-all. I mean, I, I believe in it somewhat, but I don't believe it as the, I think that combined with big data and some satellite imagery and stuff later on, it'll be one of the big pieces of the pie. So the river keepers went in, out and said, well, why don't farmers use this technology? Well, it's 30000 bucks. They said, well, what if we get grant money and we, we structure it so that you, you can get grant money and we'll come put it on your sprayer for you and all you have to do is run it. I said, sure, why not? So that I think there's 10 of them. I'm one of them. And, you know, they took a – it wasn't just me. I mean, it wasn't just, you know, as big farmers, small farmers, ag retailers. And they put meetings together. They gave educational seminars, and they got it all paid for, which was, you know, I mean, great. They gave – you know, basically gave us free equipment or, you know, through what they – where they got the grants and stuff. So, you know, it was more of a solution type of atmosphere, and the farmers took to it. Um, they have a breakfast meeting every year where all the farmers come, you know, and they have, you know, tens of probably 100 people, and they have some type of informative speaker that's kind of, I'd say, teeters on the tightrope of environmental versus farmer. You know, it's kind of an environmental ag guy. So it's not someone that's, you know, going to turn everyone off, but it's someone that's informative. They had Ray Weil at one talking about, you know, soil health and water infiltration on no till versus conventional. And then they had the Green Seeker folks. And so I think partnerships like that can really work and then also help us get better as farmers but also help the environmental
0: groups well trey i've kept you long enough i'll ask you one more question are are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of farming in the chesapeake bay watershed about your future in farming and then maybe even about your kids future in farming
1: i'm very optimistic um but I have to be because that's what I do. I mean, are you optimistic that the bay's going to get cleaner? I
0: wouldn't be banging my head against the
1: wall if I didn't think it would work at so some point. So hopefully, whatever chosen profession that you're in, you believe in what you do. Um, so if you don't have some sense of optimism, then I would retire. I wouldn't be here today if I wasn't optimistic. I think there's tremendous opportunity. Um, the commodity prices are down, which is bad for me in terms of economics, but um, I think there's, I, I think that the interest in ag and the interest in food and stuff is very healthy. I think it's a challenge, but I think also an opportunity. I'm glad that people are interested. I'm glad that people want to know where their food came from. I'm glad that people are worried about eating healthier. Um, you know, so a lot of the things that are going on in the world, I think, stem from people being so far away from ag. Um, so I think that the opportunity to, to get people involved and educated and eating better um, you know, and consuming better are are great opportunities and great challenges. Um, and I think that farming with this cover crop and agroecology, I'm pretty excited about what I can learn about soils. I think the big data is going to be part of it, which I think is really going to be fun. I just um, partnered with a company in San Francisco that's building software for farmers. They're excited. You know, they're going to start measuring carbon footprints per bushel of grain. You know, I mean, they're going to start tracking nitrogen, through big data, through these sensors, through satellite imagery, through all my information, and they're going to start. Hopefully, they told me they could, <laughs> which in theory they will be able to tell me when I apply nitrogen. They're, they've got the weather data. I mean, we've got climate core. We've got all this this great weather data now. That's all satellite based. That's all radar based. They're hopefully going to be able to tell me where my nitrogen's going.
0: That's terrific. Watch
1: per, out. Watch. per per square foot. You know, I mean, not just per acre, but everywhere, so that I'll know which is the, I mean, this is the holy grail for both of us, is when I put nitrogen on the field, where did it go?
0: Watch out, you're going to be spending more time behind the computer than on, on the back of the tractor. It so. could be fun. I,
1: I, iPads are mobile, so, you know, so, so we've got that going for us. So I think that, that all that stuff is pretty exciting, and I, I think that a lot of it's going to come. I mean, there's a, a satellite company that can take a picture of my field with sub-4-meter accuracy multiple times per day every day of the year. Mm um so that hasn't quite come to fruition yet the elon musk uh, rocket that blew up had a bunch of their satellites on it but it's basically a disposable satellite company um so i think there's a lot of really exciting things for both of us in terms of fixing some of the inefficiencies in the system which for me is good economically because the better i utilize my nitrogen the better off i am and the better utilization i get of nitrogen the happier you are because the and i am because the, the the less is going into the environment Um, In terms of my children, uh, neither one of them wants to farm. They're eight and five, or eight and six, right? So Taylor refuses to work with me. She's my daughter, and my son is convinced that he's going to be at Barcelona Academy by the time he's 14. So he's banking on that, and if that, I guess, is a second stop, it'll be the farm, so...
0: Well, Trey Hill, uh, here's to the future and to optimism for both of us. Uh, We thank you for all you've done. We value the relationship. We look forward to continuing to work with you. And uh, so on behalf of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, congratulations on your award. Thank you for taking time off the farm to come in here and talk with us today. I'm Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Please check into our website at any time, cbf.org. And uh, follow us on this podcast every two weeks. Thanks a lot, Freddie. Thank time. you, Bill. I've enjoyed it.